The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. On things that you believe are true. Right? So, so faith needs that element. At the same time, uh, we also know that our beliefs uh, and, and our, our beliefs, what we believe, shapes our idea about what is real, right? So faith also influences how we see the facts and and what we, we what we think of as true or real, and that's true behind every conspiracy theory. Whether it's about whether or not people landed on the moon or if COVID is real or not real or you should wear a mask or not wear a mask, right? There's some beliefs that go into our understanding of what's real and what the facts are, right? So what we see is that faith and facts kind of work together uh, and they're both necessary and they, they influence each other in a way that, sh- that, that, that shapes our view of reality. And, and it gives us... Uh, uh, an understanding of, of the way things we, we believe they, they are, right? So, so uh, the facts uh, before us give us convictions to believe that something is true, but at the same time, our beliefs or our faith influences how we see those facts and how we think about what is real or true. All right, so we'll unpack this a little more. Uh, but uh, John helps us see that there is a basis for our faith. It is not a, li- a blind leap. It is not something that we just believe even though there's no reason for it or no evidence. And what, what John does here is he actually unpacks for us uh, some of the proofs, if you will. Now, as you read through this, you may think, well, that's not very proof or convincing to me. That's not like the kind of proof I'm looking for, and that may be true. But it's not because there's no proof or no evidence. And so we're going to see what those are and how John affirms that. Um, so the real question then is, how can we know that Jesus is real and that he's who he claimed to be? What evidence or support is that for us to build our faith on? And, uh, and what role does faith in have in us uh, apprehending or, or, or accepting that evidence or those facts? Is it really possible that we can know the gospel and Christ is true with great certainty, with maybe even absolute certainty? Well, I think John would say yes. He says you can know with with a high, high degree of certainty, really more certain than you know anything else that you know. You can have that kind of conviction and certainty about who Jesus is and what he's done, right? And so you may think, well, I don't have that. I have a lot of doubts. So let's see if we can erase some of those doubts, diminish some of those doubts, and increase our certain conviction that the Bible is true and what it tells us about Jesus is absolutely uh, reliable. So how can we know? How can we know? Well, uh, first off, to, to, to really uh, understand this, I want to take you on a brief, short history of philosophy. This is dangerous. Let's try some rule against this. Like don't, in preaching, don't ever give a history of philosophy. That's probably a rule, but I'm going to break that rule. Um, and then I'll make the rule later. Right? This will be proof why it's bad. Um, how, how do we know? Philosophers have thought about this for a long time. In fact, way, way back to the time of the Greeks, they've wrestled with this question, how do we know, right? How do we come to know something and be confident about it? Uh, what are the, and, and they basically identified four ways of knowing. I'm just going to go through these real briefly. Going back to the earliest and the oldest, way back, maybe the most primitive times, people uh, 
relied on their intuition, right? They knew based on how it felt to them, right? Their kind of gut instinct. That's probably the most primitive and oldest way of knowing. Uh, the dictionary definition of intuition is instinctive knowing, right? Without the use of rational process or thinking, or the impression that something might be the case, but you don't have a reason for that knowledge. It's just a, a gut instinct. It feels right. We have this inner sense or conviction that's, that it's true, but we're not really sure why. Um, and like I said, it's probably the oldest way of knowing. Probably because in long ages past, they didn't have a lot of scientific data or knowledge or information. And so they just had to kind of base things on how they felt about it, right? How they felt about it. And they had to just go with their, their gut instinct. They didn't have recorded history to fall back on or science to fall back on. Uh, of course, uh, anybody who uh, thinks this through would realize that there are some weaknesses or disadvantages to this form of, of knowing, right? Uh, if you base your whole life simply on intuition, uh, you could end up in kind of a bad place, right? And the reason is uh, it's quite vulnerable to personal misconceptions and delusions, right? Even the most brilliant people in the world, I'm listening to the Confessions of St. Augustine, I highly recommend it, and uh, he was a brilliant man, but he was quite deceived before he came to Christ. And he believed things that um, we would say, well, how could a smart person believe that? Um, see, we, can, we, we, are, we are vulnerable to misconceptions and delusions if we base it just on our own feelings. And so primitive peoples were quite superstitious, right? They, they had this feeling that sickness was caused by evil spirits, not by bac- bacteria or, or viruses, right? Because they didn't know what those were. And they just felt, well, people are sick, that's bad, it must come from bad spirits, right? And, of course, um, that, that we, we know that's not true, that's not reality, right? So that's uh, intuition. But intuition does, as, as we will see, does have value. It's not, it's not an invalid way of knowing. It's just, it's just got problems, right? So intuition. Second is what's known as rationalism or reason or logic. So the Greeks of the ancients, ancients saw all the superstition and they were like, okay, there's got to be more to, to verifying information than just our gut instinct about it. So they started saying, well, no, we can know by, our, by thinking about it, right? By, uh, by our, our, our reason or our logic. We can think about things and if they make sense to us, then we can have a level of confidence that it's true. So this approach uh, to acquiring knowledge rests on the idea that reason is the primary source of knowledge. Uh, it's favored by many philosophers because they like thinking about things. And, um, and the, basically the world has certain laws or principles that can be discovered by thinking about them. Right? Uh, what's important to note is this, this way of knowing is independent of observations. Right? So I'm just thinking about it. I just have ideas. And these ideas make sense, and it's reasonable, it's logical, so it must be true, right? Um, Now, um, uh, this was dominant in the world back before the 1700s. So from the Greeks up to the 1700s, uh, it was kind of known as the age of reason. And they thought they were smart, and they spent great time weaving these elaborate arguments. And if you want to read them, you can go back in history books and do that, right? Um, the disadvantages, uh, it works with abstractions which can oftentimes be unrelated to the real world we live in. Right? So you can have a very logical argument about Narnia, <laughs> but Narnia doesn't actually exist. Right? So even though it's logical, it doesn't make it real. Uh, second, logical arguments may hide 
fallacies or prejudices or conceits. In other words, um, you can be smart and you can think a lot, but that doesn't mean you're not prejudiced in your thinking and have preconceived ideas or assumptions that, that get woven into your logic that may or may not be true, right? Um, uh, so that's a problem. Um, so uh, uh, lastly, the, the biggest weakness is that oftentimes our logic is, is logical to us because it makes sense in our culture. <laughs> like a lot of things make sense because we, they're culturally accepted. Okay, so here's a good example of this. We, we all think about medicine as being kind of at the pinnacle of knowing research and science, right, all that kind of stuff. But did you know that up until World War II, medicine was based primarily on, 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 on reason and logic, okay, and so, so this is how this worked. All the way back to the Greeks, they said that uh, sickness is not caused by evil spirits. They figured that one out. They decided the sickness was caused by an imbalance of fluids in your body. Right? And so to get better, you didn't go to the witch doctor to get the evil spirits out. You went to a different kind of doctor who cut you and bled out fluids. Right? Did you know that they pract- medicine and doctors in the West practice this up until uh, World War One, so get this: we we had invented automobiles, trains, and airplanes, and we were still trying to fix people by bleeding them. Why? Well, because science, uh, medicine, up to that point had been based on rationalism, right? On what was logical, and it made sense. You know, this whole thing about fluids and balance, right? It made sense. It was logical. But as it turns out, it was wrong, right? Aren't you glad you, now you can go and you can actually take uh, aspirin for a headache and not have to go cut yourself and bleed for a while, right? Much better option. And it actually works better, right? So that's, that's, that's kind of the deficiencies of that system. Uh, but it is still important and it's good, okay? Uh, we can know things through logical reasoning and there's some benefit and value to it, all right? Third thing, third um, approach is through uh, what we call empirical evidence. Okay, and of course what happened was uh, about the time of World War I, when doctors were bleeding people, um, they were going, yeah, this isn't really working. And actually, interestingly, one of the factors that contributed to this was the Spanish flu, right? So what's causing the Spanish flu? And uh, somebody figured out through research, by observation, through empirical research, that it actually wasn't a problem of an imbalance of fluids in your body. It was actually little viruses, little, little organisms that were getting into your body and causing problems, right? And we all know about these viruses now. We're all experts at viruses. And we love viruses, right? We're so excited about viruses because it's been our life for the last three years. Right? So this approach uh, to acquiring knowledge relies on the idea that all knowledge is gained through experiences which can be verified or disproved by observation, right? By hands-on touch and see, by examining uh, physical evidence, right? So, uh, and this was put forward by uh, John Locke and David Hume in the 1700s. And uh, they, they, they were really reacting against rationalism. They were going, yeah, you can be logically wrong, right? We need evidence. We need facts. We need hard data that we can observe and prove. So, uh, so that from the 1700s up to the late 1900s, uh, kind of up to the present, but not really, has influenced how we think about knowing. And in fact, uh, some people took this so far that they said, this is the only way you can really know anything. You can only know what can be tested in a laboratory. 
but can be put under a microscope. If you can't do that, you can't really know. Right? If you can't prove it through the observations of see, sight and hearing and touch, can be can be verified. Right? That's the only way you can know. And anything else is subject to being way off, way off. We don't. We, in fact, they they kind of rejected things like intuition and 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 logic. Right? So that's why when you go to. By the way, that's why when you go to a doctor, and you say. Well, I want to know why this works, okay? You're going to give me this medicine. I want to know why this medicine works. They will say that's irrelevant because you're wanting to know why it's logical. We're just going to tell you this is what the research says. We don't know why it works, and it doesn't matter. All that matters is that in the test field, we did this 10,000 times, and this was the result. That's all you need to know is the empirical data, right? But there are disadvantages to this as well, even though... Uh, in modernism, this was like the hope of how we could really know and prove everything. The disadvantage is that not everything is observable. And as Christians, we would say, yeah, that we believe there's a whole spiritual realm out there, a whole spiritual reality beyond the universe that you can't observe in a microscope, right? Uh, you can't put the Holy Spirit in a test tube and boil him down and put him under a microscope and see him, right? There are realities beyond the physical reality. Right? So that would be one limitation. Secondly, our senses are limited. So we, we can't know everything because uh, things can get confused by our observation. Right? Um, back a few years ago, you remember that thing about uh, people putting a color on Facebook and they were saying this is blue, but it was really pink or something like that. Or they said it was pink and it was really blue. I don't know the story. Um, but the point is our, our observations can be flawed. Right? It can be, or our interpretation of the data can be different, right? The, the raw data may be set, but what we, the meaning we give to it, our interpretation can be quite varied. It may or may not be true. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's often research that proves this, proves this, proves that, proves whatever. And then uh, what happens is three or six months later, somebody comes out with more research that disproves or contradicts point A, right? And so we have uh, proof, right, evidence uh, that contradicts each other. And so we're, we're forced to decide, not based on the evidence, but which, which of the two sets of evidence we want to believe, Right? So, for example, somebody says bacon's bad for you. Somebody else says bacon's good for you. They both have research. But I like bacon, so I'm going with the research that says bacon is good for you. Right? That's kind of how it works. But so, so th there's weaknesses in this, right? The empirical system uh, actually turned out to not be as the, the lifesaver of the world that, that they thought it would be. It also is flawed. Right? Um, so so what, what do we do then? Well, um, um, another option is, is the voice of authority, right? The voice of authority. This is the relies on, on experts who are respected in their, in their field as a source of information on that subject, right? We, we, we may not know how to interpret the data, but we trust in the expert, the authorities who can interpret it for us. Um, problems with this is that authorities can be wrong, right? Um, and oftentimes... We look to authorities, again, who we admire or respect, who may not actually be real experts. They're just, they're just convincing, right? Um, and we know nowadays that actually the experts are all funded 
by people with agendas, right? So uh, they're not as unbiased as, as they as they um, as they would appear to be. Um, so so those are the, the those are the ways we can know, and they all have their advantages. They all have their weakness. Uh, what's the best way? Well. Uh, Probably the best way is if we can affirm something or know it in all four areas, right? If, if somehow we could get all four of those areas to line up, then, then we could be pretty convinced that it's, it's true, right? If we have uh, streams from each of those four areas. So, so that's really what I believe John does here in, in 1 John 5. He lines up uh, all these ways of knowing to affirm the reality of Christ, right? And let's go through these. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but let's go through them briefly. First off, uh, and this, this comes as a shock to a lot of people, but actually we can know Jesus through empirical evidence. We can know about Jesus through data, right? Um, and, and this is what he says in verse 6. Again, this is again where it's a little confusing. We don't always know what this means, but I'll explain. Verse 6 says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Who came by water and blood. Not only by water, uh, but by water and blood. Well, that clears it up right there, right? Oh, yeah, I got that. Oh, good. Let's move on. We'll we'll explain what he's talking about here. Uh, But he goes on in verse 7. He says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. What in the world is he talking about here? Well, he's talking here about witnesses, people who give uh, testimony, and they're putting forward evidence. And two of these witnesses or testimonies, I believe, would be in the, the realm of empirical evidence, what can be seen, uh, what can be proven through hands-on observation, right? Uh, and, and there's three witnesses, and that's significant because in the Old Testament, if you wanted to prove something was true, if you wanted to know something with a high degree of certainty, you needed three witnesses. And so he says there are three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Well, what are those? Well, the water and the blood really refer to the baptism and, and the death of Jesus on the cross, which marked the beginning and end of his, his earthly ministry. Right? And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why that's probably true, but just trust me on this one or look it up later. Right? Uh, the water most likely refers to Jesus' baptism. And if you remember at the baptism, uh, John baptized uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And, and uh, he had power, and that's what launched his ministry. Uh, and it terminated, it ended with his enemies uh, nailing him to a cross and crucifying him. Right? And, and, and these things are real. They can be tested and verified by observation and by witnesses who saw it. Right? Uh, not only the beginning and the end, but everything in between. Uh, what he taught, the miracles he performed where he went, everything, right? There are witnesses of this. Uh, people who, who lived on the earth at that time and can verify his life and work. Right? So John begins this very letter with his own empirical observations about Jesus, right? Remember this, he says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, that is the word of God, uh, the Son of God, which we have heard with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning this word of life. As John says, I have empirical certainty. I saw him, right? I saw him. I touched him. I, I actually even touched his nail-scarred hands, right? I saw the real blood flow out of his body on the cross, and I, I, I can verify his death with certainty, right? 
Uh, and that's true of all the apostles. The apostles uh, viewed Jesus, right? They, they saw him, and they can verify empirically that he was a real, at the very least, that Jesus was a real person, that he really lived and walked and, and, and uh, lived on this earth. And they wrote their, their letters and their epistles and the Gospels within the lifetime of, of countless thousands of people who also saw him, right? And we have no written record anywhere of people refuting what the apostles wrote that say, well, they just made that up. We never, we never saw a Jesus, right? His reputation was known throughout, and, and it was common knowledge that he was a real and living person. So at the very least, we know Jesus really lived, right? Maybe he wasn't the Son of God, maybe he wasn't what he claimed to be, but at the very least, we have proof that he was a real person, and he lived during the time that the Bible says he did, right? But, but there's, there's more than that. We, we, really, uh, we really have no evidence to dispute his miracles, there's plenty of evidence that supports that he really did do all the things that he claimed, that the scriptures claim, right? And really the best evidence for that is that his enemy, even his enemies, the ones who nailed him to the cross, right, none of them disputed Jesus' miracles. In fact, that's part of the reason they killed him, right? I love in, in John chapter 11, you remember in John chapter 11, uh, Lazarus dies and Mary and Martha are very sad and they say, Jesus, if you'd only been here, our brother Lazarus would be alive. And Jesus said, I'm doing this for the glory of God. And where is he? They take him to the tomb. And remember that dramatic scene where Jesus shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. And after four days in the grave, which is long enough to start being like really dead, not just a little dead, like four days, you're, you're really dead. And they're worried that he's going to smell bad, right? Uh, but he comes forth. He comes out, right? And uh, there were there were... Pharisees and there were friends of the of the religious leaders who were there and who saw it, right? And they go to report this to the religious authorities, the leaders. And this is what it says. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. Right? They don't say, well, you guys are idiots. Why are you believing? That didn't really happen. No, they don't dispute his miracles. Right? So, 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 so that's pretty convincing evidence. We also see that, that even after his resurrection, his whole life, but even after he died and rose again, there are countless uh, Reliable witnesses who verify the fact, right? It says at one point, 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus all at one time. And of course, people say, well, you know, people were hallucinating. Jesus didn't really rise. They just were having hallucinations. They were dreaming it, right? This would be pretty impressive. Like, this goes against empirical evidence that 500 people had a, uh, the same hallucination all at the exact same time, right? That's just that's, that's ridiculous, right? There's There's evidence. There's this... Uh, really empirical, verifiable evidence that it's true, right? Uh, we also see that, that these witnesses are incredibly unified in their testimony, right? Uh, their testimony is consistent, but it's not mimicked or copied. So in other words, the four gospel writers tell Jesus' life story, and they do it in a way that is very consistent, but they didn't just cut and paste each other's work, right? There are variations, which we would expect 
from different witnesses who saw it from different perspectives and angles, right? Um, and, and, and even here in John, he says, there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these, these agree. So there's, there's harmony in all this testimony, all this evidence, right? Uh, so, so the point of all this is that the witness of these voices has been recorded in Scripture, and we can examine it, and, and it's been accurately preserved, and that can also be verified empirically, right? Um, and so, so we do have some basis, right? Now, does that prove without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God? No, no, it does not, right? But there's, there's a basis for what we believe. There's a basis to accept the message that it was accurate, that it's what the apostles saw together and what they have reported to us. It's, it's, it's reliable. The story and the message is reliable. Secondly, we know by the voice of authority. Okay, there is an authoritative voice that speaks about and verifies this, right? So uh, the evidence could be up for debate, how it gets interpreted or what it really means. But there's a voice of authority who takes it kind of to the next level, right? Um, and, and the voices of authority are basically two. There is the authority, first of all, of Scripture. Okay, the authority of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is authoritative. And we believe it's authoritative because it claims to be God-inspired. God breathed it, right? So uh, can, can we prove empirically, can we prove empirically that the Bible is, is an inspired word of God? Because there's some lab we could take this to and take the pages and put it in some litmus test and, and you know, there'd be like inspired or not inspired, right? It comes out inspired. Oh, good, it passed the test. Not like a COVID test, right? Um, got some swab. We stick up the nose of the Bible. I don't know. Um, no, there is not that. There is not that. But there is a voice of authority, and that authority is the Spirit himself, right? So it says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what's recorded in Scripture, right? And it says that, that, that um, the Spirit is the one who testifies to these things, right? Uh, because the Spirit is truth. So the reason we accept the Bible as authoritative is because the Holy Spirit affirms it. The Holy Spirit testifies to the other two witnesses, the, the water and the blood, the life of Jesus, right, as it's recorded in Scripture. The Holy Spirit verifies it authoritatively that it's true. Uh, and he can do that, first of all, because he is truth. Right? His very nature of the Spirit is truth. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. He does not want to deceive. He, he, his job is to uphold and verify what is true, right? But secondly, he, he's also a first-hand witness because at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and uh, he had a front row seat throughout Jesus' life and ministry. And so he can verify as the spirit of truth that it is, it is all true and therefore it is authoritative. But, but beyond that, <clears throat> we have this, uh, this statement in verse 9. He says, if we see, suppose, let's put it this way, suppose we receive the testimony of men. Suppose we believe human authorities. Suppose we believe the evidence, the empirical evidence that people put forward because it, it validates things, right? Suppose we do that. Well, um, the testimony of God is greater. The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son, right? Like, so, so remember the definition of an authority 
authoritative voice, right? It is somebody who, has, or who is a respected source of information on a particular subject. So let me ask you a question. Do you think God is an authoritative source of information on the subject of Jesus? Yes, right? The answer is yes. I think God actually is pretty authoritative on every subject and topic, right? I don't know of a topic that God, who created the universe, would not be uh, authoritative about. But, but even, even of all the subjects he could talk about, the, the topic of his son is a topic of, a, of unique authority to God the Father. It's his son, right? And the plan to send his son as the, as, as the redeemer, as the one who would save us, as the one who would pay the penalty for sin. Uh, whose plan was this? Well, it was God's plan. It was his purpose. He was an expert. He, he was the creator of the plan. And the implementer, implementer of the plan, he's the one who sent Jesus to earth to take on human flesh, to die for the sins of mankind. Is God a good authority on this topic? Yes, right? Yes. He knows what he's talking about. Right? So we can rely on, on this witness through the Spirit of God whose testimony is greater. Right? He's more authoritative than any voice or any, any human being could possibly be. <clears throat> right? So, so we, we have that voice of authority. <clears throat> um, thirdly, it, it, it is logical and it does make sense. We have the voice of reason. Uh, we can know. We can know it's true because it does make sense. Right? Um, and, and John himself here is presenting a logical, reasonable argument. And if you don't think, and John is confusing. He might be logical, but he is confusing. Right? It, it, if you're not clear on John's logic, just flip over to Paul, right? Paul is logical, right? And he lays these things out with incredible clarity and logical consistency, right? Um, now, you may say, well, yeah, but, you know, when I explain these things to people in the world, when I say, well, there's this God out there who created the world and he made us in his image and we sinned and so God had to judge us and punish sin, but God loved us so much that he actually sent his own son to die for us who were his enemies, right? The world, people in the world may say, well, that, that doesn't make sense. That is illogical. Why would God do that, right? Why would God love somebody who's so his enemy? Okay, there's, a, there's a worldly sense in which that is illogical and does not make sense, right? But just because it's illogical to the world does not mean there's no logic to it. Right, and Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1.21, he says, for since, the, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand science and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Right? The, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. There is a logic that belongs to God that far exceeds our, our logic, our, our sense, right? And so, um, for those who will, will see God's wisdom, those who will examine the evidence, and consider it from God's perspective, it is logical. It is reasonable. It fits together. 
It does not in any way contradict itself. Which, by the way, if you examine most religions of the world, uh, they, they are self-contradicting. There are things in them that don't add up, right, and that, that people can't explain. <clears throat> but that is not true of, of Scripture and of the Bible. Right? For those who are willing to consider it, it fits together. It is not self-contradicting. It's a unified whole that, that from beginning to end fits and makes good sense. Right? Um, so, um, now if you're with me so far, maybe I've lost a lot of you because there's a lot of philosophy, but if you're still with me, right, uh, you, may, you, you may be thinking, yes, but. Okay, this is all good. Yeah, sure, this is all great. Yeah, whatever. However, all right, but, so the big but. You're basing this on a lot of assumptions, right? You haven't really proven anything because you're basing too much of this on assumptions. Like you're assuming that God exists, but you haven't proven that yet, right? You're assuming that God has revealed himself in, in the inspiration of Scripture and that he's revealed his plan about Jesus. You're assuming that. You haven't proven that, right? Um, you're, you're, you're assuming that God has, has indeed affirmed these truths, right? And you're right, right? We are basing this on a lot of assumptions. But that is why we need the fourth area of knowing, the fourth way of knowing, right? So let's look at the fourth way, and, and consequently, in John's writing, the most important, right? And this is the way of knowing through what the philosophers called intuition, or what John calls uh, inward conviction. Uh, those are not his words, but I would call it inward conviction. Inward conviction, right? Um, what do we mean by that? Well, the, the, the philosopher said that intuition is an inward conviction, an inward conviction that something is true. We, we sense it. It's a gut instinct in our souls that it's right, that it fits, that it writes, that it, that it makes sense. Um, now, there is a problem with worldly intuition, the way w- the world defines intuition, because it's purely personal and subjective. It's based fully and completely on my own thoughts. And I can be quite deceived in my own thoughts. But the d- difference is that the intuition or the inward conviction that John is talking about here is not based on me, but it's based on the, the Holy Spirit. So notice what he says in verse 6. He says, And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water and only, but by the water and, and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. Okay, then in verse 10 he says this, Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. In himself. Right, so what, what he's describing here is that one of the ways, the most important way that we can know is that the Holy Spirit uh, verifies it inwardly in our heart and soul. Not by the means of empirical evidence, not by the means of authority, although he's quite authoritative, not by the means of, um, what was the other one? I lost it. Um, well, not by the other one either. <laughs> It'll come to me. But, but inwardly, inwardly, apart from all those things, but, but using all those things together, right? Um, the authority of the word, the, the, the witness of the apostles, right? the authority of his own uh, being God, right? But he does this inwardly by testifying to us inwardly, by communicating, by prompting and nudging us inwardly, and develop, developing within us an inward conviction that this is absolutely true and right. Well, how does this work? Well, uh, a couple of ways, real quickly. First, the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul tells us, bears witness with our spirit. 
Right? Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. So there's some sense in which the Holy Spirit who is in us communicates something uh, mystically. In other words, it's not by an audible voice or by something I'm consciously aware of, but deep in our soul, somehow the Holy Spirit is communicating and prompting and nudging what is true, right? confirming what is true. Uh, and it's not just the, this subjective feeling based on my uh, feeling or opinion, but it's coming from the Holy Spirit who is prompting us, who is nodding and prodding and pushing, yes, this is true, right? Um, and, and this way of knowing is, is actually the most convincing. Let me say it again. Intuitive knowing is absolutely the most convincing. But that's not how we're mostly taught, right? Mostly, probably most of us have been taught, actually, that uh, our, our personal feelings and our intuitions are most to be doubted, right? Aren't we taught that? We're taught, actually, that, that the material world and, and uh, the empirical evidence is always to be put above our intuition, right? Um, and that's, that's the message of modernism, modernism and the scientific method. That's what we learn in school. Question your feelings. Confirm them through outward facts, tangible facts, right? That's what we're told. Um, and, and so we may grow up and come to this place where we feel that the material is far more convincing than the immaterial or the spiritual. Like, if you're honest, would you, would you agree with that? That the material world, things I can touch and put my hands on, things I can experience with my senses, are certainly more real than anything immaterial or spiritual. Would you say that's true? I would say that's true for me, right? Often. Um, um, so, so, so how can I say, and how can John say, that actually the intuitive, the immaterial, the unseen, is actually more convincing and more to be relied on? Well, um, we're talking about the work, not of our own feelings alone, but the work of the eternal spirit who is verifying truth by bearing witness about these things in our inner being. And God who himself is immaterial, God who himself is pure spirit, God himself who transcends far beyond the physical universe we live in, right? Uh, I think he would say the spiritual is more reliable. I think he would say the spiritual is more reliable. First, because the created material world is temporary, changing, fading, and is very subject to misinterpretation. Right? Think about this. This world is temporary. It is fading away. It will one day be gone. And it's constantly changing. How reliable is that? Right? Sounds like a politician. <laughs> Fading, changing, and someday is gone, right? right? Of course, you can't take their word, right? Uh, why do we rely so heavily and put so much confidence in a world that is temporary, changing, fading, and subject to constant change and mis- mis- misinterpretation? Uh, Jesus himself actually commends faith that is based not on seeing, not on empirical evidence, but faith that is based on the intuitive, on not seeing, right? Uh, remember when after Jesus' resurrection, remember Thomas the great doubter? Th- Th- Thomas wanted what? He wanted empirical evidence. He says, I will believe it when I see it, when I touch it. Right? So 
Jesus uh, humors him. Jesus shows up, appears. Hey, Thomas, I'm here. And notice what he says in John uh, 20, 27. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand, touch, and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. And if it takes empirical evidence, here it is. Put me under the microscope, right? I'm here. Uh, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, you have believed because you've seen me, but more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Right? Jesus affirms not, not this empirical evidence. He says that's not the best plan. Right? The best is when you can believe intuitively through the witness of the Spirit in your heart. Not based on what you see, but on, on what is not seen. All right? Okay. Um, so, so, so one of the reasons the Spirit, uh, the Spirit's witness is better is because it's, 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 um, it's not temporary, right? It's, it's, it's valued by Christ. But secondly, because the conviction of the Spirit in the inner person is more enduring and vastly more reliable. Uh, not because of the method, but because it's the Spirit who is truth, right? So when, when, when God... Uh, convinces of something inwardly, right? Uh, it is it is indisputable proof. Our only problem is that we we, we just don't believe it, right? Not because it's not convincing, but because we're looking in the wrong places for a reliable source of information. Notice it says in verse nine: If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater, right? It is better. It is greater. It is more certain. Therefore, the witness of the Spirit is more convincing than any other witness to the truth. We, 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 we can touch on those others. We can draw from those others. But in the end, what's going to convince you is the witness-bearing Spirit within you by his nudging. Right? Um, so, so let's put this into practice. Let's apply this. We have three minutes left to apply this. Um, what does all this mean for us? Well, first of all, uh, we, we do have this message available to us uh, for our, our, our examination, to put, if you will, under the, under the microscope, right, and to evaluate it, to examine it, to consider it. And the first thing is to do that, right? Dig into the word. Know the message. Know the story. Uh, study it, right? Uh, Paul says in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, so that is a starting point, right? We're not asking to be zapped by the Spirit apart from his revelation. Right? The starting point is what he has revealed about himself, this wonderful message that, that is there for us to look at. So we need to be looking at the message, studying the Gospels, reading the arguments that Paul and others have put out in Scripture. Right? Second, um, as we consider it, we do need to trust the evidence we've been given. Right? We, need to, we need to start exercising faith in, in what, what, we, what we do have in the message. And, and John puts it this way in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Right? So which comes first? The conviction of the Spirit or our believing it? Which comes first? Yes. <laughs> I don't know, right? They, they, they come together. Like, remember we talked about faith needs facts, but fact needs faith, and they, they go together. 
And, and there's this amazing balance of, of learning about the story, getting the facts and information, but then receiving it with some measure of faith. And when we receive that measure of faith, he says that that testimony now resides in us. And the Holy Spirit confirms it more. And the more he confirms it, the more we believe it's true. And the more we believe it's true, the more we understand the facts and they make sense to us. And that shapes our, our vision of reality. Right? Those things go together. Where we get in trouble is when we say, well, when I get enough facts, when I get convincing proof that I approve of, then I might consider believing. Right? And he says in verse 11, this is a, a serious warning for us. He says in, um, uh, actually, I'm sorry, in the second half of verse 10, um, uh, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has testified concerning his son. Right? So by rejecting, by failing to believe, we also start a, a, a cycle in the other direction. That God isn't true. That the gospel is not true. That God must be lying. And therefore we can't and won't believe it. Because why would we believe a lie? Right? And we start undermining faith. Right? So there's an amazing balance of these things to going together, the, the, the facts of the message along with our receiving it by faith, right, that confirms it. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit will confirm it even further. Uh, third thing, we need to seek the witness of the Spirit, right? Don't rely too much on the empirical evidence or the voice of authority or uh, what's logical, right? The highest and most significant uh, voice that will validate that it's true is the Holy Spirit. Right? So it's vitally important that we don't look to outward things to confirm Scripture. That we learn how to listen to the voice of the Spirit inside. Right? Now, the, the, I believe the Holy Spirit works uh, in conjunction and primarily with Scripture. People get in trouble because they hear all kinds of voices inside uh, apart from Scripture and, and they oftentimes want to attribute that to God of the Holy Spirit. That's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit giving witness to the message that's recorded in the Word. Right? He validates the Word. So when we read the Bible and we read something and it's like the Holy Spirit's nudging and saying, yes, that's true. Yes, that's right. Believe that. Right? Not, you know, well, God told me I need to sell everything and move to Mars. Right? I had somebody tell me that one. Not Mars. I had somebody tell me. God told me to tell everything and move to the city. And, and I came and it's been a disaster. Like, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe God told you that. I don't know. Maybe he didn't, right? But we know when the Holy Spirit verifies Scripture. So that's what we're talking about. Lastly, be a faithful witness, right? Be a faithful witness. We are to be telling others the message. Uh, but, but remember, it's not our job to convince them. Uh, we can remove obstacles to their faith by their questions through uh, the evidence that's in Scripture. But don't feel like you have to convince them. And also, don't be discouraged when they're not convinced. I, I'm, I get so, I've shared Christ with a lot of people, and I think I'm so logical and clear, and I've explained it so well, and I've answered all their questions. And I remember a, a guy, uh, he actually taught at Chiang Mai University, and he said, he said this to me. He said, I wish I could believe it. You make it all sound so good, but I can't. I just can't believe it's true. 
right? And, and that's because it's not my job to convince. Right? It's not our job to convince. That's ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and in, in time, he, he, we, we hope and pray that he will convince them of the reliability and the truthfulness of the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, um, for coming. Thank you that we, we have great confidence that you are a real person who came to this earth. Um, thank you that uh, you died for us. And more than just knowing you're a real person, we can have confidence in, in why you died and its purpose, uh, that you died to save us. And Lord, we ad- admit and confess that sometimes we have doubts. Sometimes we, we hear the skepticism of the world and it, it makes us doubt and wonder, is God real? Is the Bible real? Can it be trusted? Uh, but Lord, we, we praise you and thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to verify these things, to bear witness to these things with an amazing voice of authority, the very authority of God himself. Lord, help us to hear that voice, uh, to tune in not to the skepticism of the world, but to tune in to um, the, the voice of the Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit. And Lord, may, may that become the, the solid foundation and basis of our faith that we can know with great conviction and certainty that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world through his own blood and by his death on the cross. And so we celebrate you. We worship you as the true and living God. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.